According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs 14, we're looking at verses 15 and 16, really also down into 17. I want to, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll take it all the way down through verse 17. I've revised one of my slides from last week, and so I'll highlight that for you, and you can make your own pen and ink correction um, this morning. As I realized, uh, I was not looking at the poetry properly, and I found an additional parallel that I wanted to include in the poetry. And so, um, anyway, I went ahead and made that adjustment between last week and this week, and want to spotlight that here this morning. Before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father to once again show how faithful He is and bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning thankful for Your grace and truth and thankful for our time, calling upon Your faithfulness, Father, to set aside distractions, hedge us about, protect us. Father, there may be some folks that would be walking through and maybe they'll even step in and we we just want to call upon your faithfulness, Father, to keep us from uh, harm and, Father, just to to manifest your glory. So uh, remove whatever might be distracting. We need the Word of God. We need it on a daily basis, in particular this morning as we look at faith and the object of faith. Father, this is is vital for our Christian walk. So uh, keep our eyes focused where they need to be so that we can walk by faith and enter into rest. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so much of what we're looking at this morning actually ties in very well with uh, Hebrews and where we are on Sunday mornings in Hebrews chapter 3 because there's a warning there to not uh, there, there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And uh, the consequences of that apostasy are such that by not walking by faith, we fail to achieve rest and the rest that has been designed for us in the church age. So we have a passage this morning here from Proverbs 14 talking about pethy and uh, believing everything. And so Proverbs 14, 15, the naive believes everything, but the sensible man considers his steps. And so we don't just want to believe everything. And there are things that we should not be believed. And we want to stop and think things through. We want to be shrewd. And the word there for the sensible man is a term for shrewdness that uh, in the Garden of Eden was not a good thing. The serpent was more crafty, was more shrewd than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And so uh, Genesis 3 is our introduction to that vocabulary for shrewd or crafty. And it sure seems like it's a, it's a negative thing. Uh, interestingly enough, though, once we get past the serpent, Genesis chapter 3, when we get into Proverbs especially, shrewdness is written of as a good thing. And uh, we should have discernment as we grow in our wisdom, and we should be shrewd. Jesus told his disciples to be shrewd as serpents, yet harmless as doves. And so uh, just because the serpent was shrewd uh, is not a reason for us to not be shrewd. We want to be shrewd, yet harmless. Okay, we don't want to be satanically shrewd. And so we'll illustrate that with some things as well. Uh, let's continue on though. So we're going to talk about faith because we have a verb there in verse 15 uh, that comes from 
uh, the amen vocabulary of Hebrew, right? So we have amuna, and we have amin, and we have other amen expressions in the Hebrew language, and that's what we deal with there for believing. We also have uh, trusting that uh, comes up in verse 17, and so a lot of those are concepts that come together in parallel that don't necessarily uh, have an obvious parallel in the English. So the naive believes everything, but the sensible man considers his steps. A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. And the carelessness thing is is another idiom, is another expression. For carelessness, it it centers on uh, inappropriate trusting, right? Because if you don't trust appropriately, then you are careless, and so it speaks of being overly trusting, uh, just trusting everything. And if you trust everything, that means you're trusting the wrong stuff, and that's functionally then carelessness. And so uh, really, if you're going to take care with something, if you're going to show caution and have care, that means uh, you're, you're selective in what you trust and what you don't trust. And, uh, and if you're not selective in, in trusting then you're going to be careless. And that's the, that's the whole point. And so once I recognized that, and once I saw the verb batach, and I saw, and, and I've known for years that the amen, the, the amen family and the batach family are very frequently used uh, in interchangeably. That you have believe and you have trust. And you have those expressions. And in the Hebrew, they're separate expressions for believing and for trusting. And uh, yet in the Greek, when we get to the New Testament, what do we have? We have pistuo, and we have pistis, and we have the, the New Testament doctrine of faith which, in which really you have a blend. You have a blend of the, of the believing and the trusting and the, the combination of what comes across this way in, in the Hebrew poetry. So in the slides then, as we're dealing with point 10, this is where I made that adjustment, all right? So pethy trusts anything and everything and last week I had listed there Proverbs 14:15a and I went ahead and attached to that 16b all right so you didn't write that down last week cuz I hadn't spotted the uh the the poetry there and the linking between amin and batach until uh, until later so uh go ahead and just squeeze that in there and everything else is the same uh in the in the pethy side of things then in the second half of the verse, so did you follow what I just said there? Uh, Pethy trusts anything and everything. And these are the verses that were on the slide last week with the exception of, uh, I squeezed in right there, I squeezed in a 16b to go with 15a in the first part of that point. Uh, otherwise, everything is the same, 22.3, 26.25, 27.12. Those are all verses that talk about uh, how wrong it is, how foolish it is, how naive it is to just put your faith in the wrong object, to believe the wrong things. But Arum, and this is a proper name for the shrewd, or for the, uh, for as it says here, um, the sensible man, Arum stops to consider, stops to consider. And here too, I squeezed in a 16a. You didn't have that on the slide last week. Last week, all you had was 14, uh, 15b. Um, but there I, I squeezed in the 16a. And so that's to show the poetry. So as you're looking at 
15 and 16 now as a unit, you'll see that, that the, the A part of 15 goes great with the B part of 16. See what I'm talking about? The naive believes everything, and then a fool is arrogant and careless. That's the parallel concept there with the verb amin and the, and the verb batach. And then 15b with 16a, the sensible man considers his steps. Well, that's very parallel to uh, a wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, right? Okay, so if you can see that in the English, uh, you see what I'm explaining, and it, it just jumped out. Once I saw that batach verb, I just, wow, how did I miss that? Because there are many other passages where amen and batach are used and in... Uh, in linked ways. All right, so we can proceed from there. So pethy trusts anything and everything, but a room stops to consider. And that's, that's what we're called to do, you and me, all right? Uh, this is noble-minded. We're going to be a Berean, okay? We're going to learn a new song called Be a Berean. And if you're going to be a Berean, then you've got to check it out. You've got to search the Scriptures, see if these things are so. If, if somebody's dishing up something and it's not so, then why would you place your faith in that? Why would you trust in that? You've got to stop and you've got to consider your steps. And if it's not so, you've got to turn away. And that's the, the nature of it. And so uh, it is noble-minded, Acts 17.11, to uh, stop and to consider. And we've got some sub-points on this, and we got through A last week. I'm going to move on to B and C this morning and then uh, talk about the quick-tempered man in, uh, in verse 17. And boy, that's when it gets personal. So we'll, uh, we'll deal with that. But faith in God is always the right object. You never go wrong believing in God, right? Because if God said it, it's true. God cannot lie. God is infinitely faithful. And so this is, uh, again, it's a concept we want to get across. And it's a concept that's useful for us in our apologetic ministry, in our evangelism, in talking to unbelievers, and even in talking to younger believers, to baby believers. Faith in God is always the right, the right object. You never go wrong when you pistuo in God, right? Because God is faithful. And that's what it comes down to. The value of faith is not in the subject of the one believing. It's in the object of what is believed, either who or what or that. Uh, if you're believing a lie, then your faith is worthless, if you're believing a lie, if you're believing a false God, if you're believing in Allah instead of God the Father and God the Son, now you still have the same activity. You're still believing, right? The Muslim is believing. We're believing. But he's believing in Allah, and we're believing in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, right? And so what's the difference? It's a big difference. We, we, we still have human beings that are using their faith. We have human beings that are believing, that are trusting, that are applying faith. The difference is we're applying faith to the right object, they're applying faith to the wrong object. The value of faith is in the object. That's why it's non-meritorious. That's why when we talk about by grace you are saved through faith, there's no merit in faith. It's not a work. It's, it's, it's a non-meritorious thing that we do. And when it's reckoned to us as righteousness, it's, not, it's, it's credited, it's reckoned, it's not a wage. It's grace. It's not, it's not works. It's not what we've earned or deserved. 
And so that's very clear. All right. So uh, Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. And God will, failed to fix that typo, God will faithfully provide evidence for trusting him because he never expects us to believe with no evidence. He never expects us to believe without checking it out. He wants us to be to stop and consider. And so we stop and we consider, and he's laid before us the testimony of his faithfulness. Again and again and again. If you're dealing with, and we get this, all right? If you're dealing with a person, uh, whoever, a spouse, a pastor, a friend, a neighbor, what, it doesn't matter. You're dealing with a person, and the longer you've known him, the longer you've known, or her, the person, the longer you've known this person, and the more frequently you find that they're true. And, and, and everything they've said, they've always been dependable. They've always been faithful. And so you've got three examples of faithfulness, five examples of faithfulness, a hundred examples of faithfulness. How many examples do you need, right? You've got hundreds of examples of faithfulness and reliability. Can you trust that person? Well, yeah, because there's a track record, all right? And then, of course, you have the Lord, an infinite track record, an infinite track record who has never once lied, who everything he says is true, every verse of the Bible, I believe every word in the Word, right? Every word in the Word, from Genesis to Revelation. And uh, it's true, all right? So um, God provides evidence for trusting him. And and he gives those signs to Moses in Exodus chapter 4. He rebukes uh, the wilderness, the Exodus generation in Numbers 14, 11. And this is, it's a powerful rebuke because it demonstrates that the proof God faithfully displayed leaves them inexcusable, uh, without excuse. It's inexcusable to not believe God when there is so much evidence. It's inexcusable to not believe in the existence of God when we live in the created universe we live in. We are without excuse because he's given that evidence. So Numbers 14, 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? And so when God fully provides evidence for trusting him and you don't trust him, how dare you? Okay? And, and of course, the, the pinnacle of this is God's faithfulness in saving us. That's the a fortiori principle. Since he was so faithful in saving us, how will he not be faithful today in watching over us as we walk by faith? Right? So when we don't walk by faith now in, in, in sanctification, when we don't walk by faith now in phase two salvation, how dare we? He's already demonstrated infinite faithfulness in saving us in phase one salvation. And so now our failure to believe now is far worse. And the judgment comes and, and uh, the anger comes. We provoke him to wrath. We die in the wilderness, as it were, because uh, he's sworn his wrath. We shall not enter his rest in, uh, in these things. All right. Faith in the wrong object is never praised for its own sake. Faith in the wrong object is never praised. God doesn't honor it. God doesn't say, oh, wow, look at that faith. Oh, wow, look at that person. They're so devout. Oh, they're believing. They're believing in the wrong thing. 
So when you believe in the wrong thing, it's not praised, it's not worthy, it's not meritorious, it's pathetic. Because the value of faith is in the object. When the object is wrong, it's, the faith has no value, it's, it's void, it's, it's empty. And, and so it's, it's curious to me, because there's only three times that this concept comes up in Genesis. The first time is the positive example, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The next two times are negative examples. And as I, we kind of rushed at the end of last week to, to get to those. But negative examples whereby somebody is not trustworthy. And if somebody is not trustworthy, don't believe them. Why would you believe them? Check it out. Get some evidence. And so let's pick up with this in Genesis 42.40 or 42.20. And I know last week I was rushing and so maybe the, the, the impact on this just flew overhead. Because sometimes if the speaker just starts speaking fast, the listeners start listening fast, which means they don't listen. And they just think, okay, well, the class is almost over. Let's get out of here. And uh, so we kind of slow down now and communicate. So um, Joseph is, is encountering his brothers. They don't know it's him. They've come down to Egypt to buy food. They think he's dead because they packed him off to slavery years and years ago. And, uh, and, uh, and now they're, they're standing in front of the, the vizier, the second only to Pharaoh uh, in, uh, in Egypt what history calls the the, the vizier. And uh, and they don't know it's him. They're just there to buy food. But he knows it's them. And uh, and he understands what they're saying. He speaks their language. And it's interesting. So they, they, they tell their story as he's checking them out. And they talk about a little brother still being alive. And he doesn't believe them. He doesn't believe them. So he says he's going to hold them hostage. And they're going to have to prove it. So do this and live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, verse 19 says, uh, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison, but as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine of your household and bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. And so the idea of just believing without evidence, he wasn't going to do it. And he's not going to put his faith in the wrong object. The next example in Genesis 45 in verse 26, and in this case, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, again, disbelief. The brothers are telling uh, Jacob, or Israel, that uh, Joseph is still alive. Indeed, he's ruler over all the land of Egypt, but he was stunned, for he did not believe them. Why would he believe them? Why would he trust what they say? And uh, plenty of good reasons not to trust what they say. Job 4.18. Let's get over to the book of Job. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. Chapter 4. Job's a fascinating book for a lot of reasons. Uh, Probably the oldest of all the Old Testament books. Uh, clearly, the events that it narrates precede Abraham, and uh, my suspicion is, as Moses wrote this, but he wrote this based upon what he learned uh, during his sojourn in Midian, that he got this from Jethro, the uh, priest of Midian, and then recorded it for the Jewish people in the in the Hebrew language, and that's the tradition anyway, and uh, makes sense to me. 
So uh, we know what happens in the first two chapters and the terrible stuff in Job's life. And then his friends show up uh, to encourage him. Uh, Job's going to open his mouth and lament. And we get the content of that lament in uh, chapter 3. And so then in chapter 4 we have the first of the encouragements that quote-unquote that his friends deliver. And they're not here to encourage, they say they're here to encourage, but right from the get-go they start attacking, they start blaming, they start accusing that Job must have done something to deserve this. And so uh, that's kind of the backdrop here for chapter 4. And when you, um, when you look at this, Eliphaz the Temanite is the speaker in verse 1, and right from the, the beginning he's very confrontational and, uh, and not friendly towards Job. Right from the very beginning, if one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient for who can refrain from speaking? And so it's a, it's a hostile message that he has. And you see that in all the verses that come through. In verse uh, 7, remember now, whoever perished being innocent, where were the upright destroyed? So basically he's blowing off everything Job said in chapter 3. You're not innocent, Job. That, that doesn't happen. You're guilty. According to what I have seen, in verse 8, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. And so here comes Mr. Know-it-all based upon his life experience according to what I have seen. And, uh, and there you go. But it gets worse than that. In verse 12, a word was brought to me stealthily and my ear received a whisper of it. Uh-oh, he's listening to demons. This is not good. Amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling and made all my bones shake. Now this could be from God, it could be legitimate. Um, Daniel was very upset when he received visions and then a great dread can fall upon a real prophet even if it truly is the Lord. But that's not what's happening here. It's not the Lord telling Eliphaz that Job is guilty. It's Satan telling Eliphaz that Job is guilty because Satan's the one that was attacking Job. And so uh, a spirit passed by my face, the hair of my flesh bristled up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes, there was silence, and then I heard a voice. Okay, so I just want you to know this is the context for what we're about to read in verse 18. It's a liar, okay? But it's a liar with a grudge. And sometimes a liar with a grudge will say things that we get. A liar with a grudge is going to say things that's going to expose why he holds this grudge. It's going to expose some reality. And that's what happens here. So there was a voice. Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And this is, uh, this is what the demon's asking him. Okay, the fallen angel, maybe even personally Satan himself or one of his minions, one of his agents, we don't know. But, but here it is. It's a hypothetical, it's a rhetorical, it's full of scorn, it's full of derision. The clear answer is no. That's the expected answer anyway. Can mankind be just before God? Is that even possible? Is it possible for fallen humanity to be in a just, righteous, conformed relationship with the Almighty. How does that happen? 
can a man, so a mankind plural, and then any man, any individual man, be pure before his maker? If God is holy and we must be holy, well, how's that going to happen? We're sinners. And so this is the scorn that the demon is communicating. He puts no trust even in his servants. Against his angels he charges error. Now these are the sour grapes complaints of a fallen angel, a wicked spirit, a demon, whatever it is, accusing God of being unfair. He puts no trust even in his servants. So he's accusing God of not putting trust in a demon. (laughs) And I'm willing to say, yeah, wrong object. Don't put your faith in that. Faith in the wrong object is never praised. Now it's slightly backwards in this context because the... uh, the angel here, the spirit, is accusing God of, of not walking right, and accusing God of not putting trust even in the angels. Against his angels he charges error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, you puny mortal dust creatures, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before the moth, you pathetic mortal dust creature dust creature human beings can you just it's dripping the vile the scorn disgust it's like uh you know i stopped stomped on a cockroach this morning you know idiot was in my shower and i was trying to get a shower and open up the shower door and there he was like what are you doing here okay i stomped him good and and i don't feel guilty at all Yes, it was one of God's creatures. Don't care. I have dominion over God's creatures. And so think about it, though. That's how the angels view us. That's how the fallen angels view us, not the elect angels. The elect angels have a sense of wonder about it because not only are we puny and weak and helpless and pathetic, but Jesus became one of us. And so the elect angels just have an amazement and a wow. Because the angel of the Lord was mightier than any of them. And the angel of the Lord, Jesus set aside the angel of the Lord existence and was born of a virgin. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so the elect angels are like, wow. (laughs) Look at that. So weak is awesome. Uh, humble yourself and God will exalt you. Whereas Satan was mighty and tried to exalt himself and God's bringing him low. Anyway, um, more of the scorn here on the dust creatures. How much more are those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before the moth? Between morning and evening they are broken in pieces. Unobserved they perish forever. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them they die yet without wisdom. Us dust creatures are mortal. We have a mortal existence. And the fallen angels just can't get that and mock that and, and descend, uh, reject that. All right, over, uh, let's stay in Job. Let's go over to chapter 15. There's been some more back and forth here in the meantime. Each accuser, Job has a response. And then we get to the next accuser and Job has a response. 
And um, by the time we get to 15, we're back to Eliphaz again. And um, again, more accusations. Eliphaz the Temanite responded, should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? You know, you're still wrong, no matter how wordy you get. And uh, But there's some curious glimpses throughout this chapter. Verse 7, were you the first man to be born? Were you brought forth before the hills? Well, who was birthed before the hills? Specifically the humanity of Jesus Christ. That's right. Yeah, God was not birthed. The Father was not birthed. God the Son was not birthed. God the Holy Spirit was not birthed. But the humanity of Jesus Christ was birthed and was birthed before the hills. Nobody else was birthed before the hills. Adam wasn't even birthed. Adam was molded out of the dust and shaped and life was breathed into him. Adam was not birthed. And and Adam was created after the hills. So were you the first man to be born? Were you brought forth before the hills? Do you hear the secret counsel of God and limit wisdom to yourself? See, Jesus Christ had a unique relationship with God the Father that no other angel enjoyed. Yes, there was a divine counsel. Yes, there were multiple angels that were called Elohim and Benaha Elohim, the sons of God. But the pinnacle was God the Son, the God-man. And He was the one in the bosom of the Father. He's the one that, as it says here, hears the secret counsel of God. And He's the one that gets the title of wisdom. Satan didn't get the title of wisdom. He was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, but he is not called wisdom the way God the Son is called wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8. Anyway, there's a lot of, a lot of issues here. And it's, it's, it's interesting what these patriarchs know. They're probably six generations off the ark, right? They're, they're two generations. I might have my numbers off here, but I, I'm, I'm pegging Job at two generations pre-Abraham. All right, so go and track the generations between Noah and Abraham, and find the one that's uh, right there with maybe Peleg and Eber, and uh, in whose days the earth was divided, and that's that's kind of the context here for the book of Job. All right, so were you the first man to be born? Were you brought forth before the hills? Do you hear the secret counsel of God and limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that we do not? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. See, uh, Noah might be dead by now, but Ham, Shem, and Japheth are still alive. And of those older generations, they're still alive. Remember, lifespans are shrinking, but the, the, the generations above them are going to outlive them. They're going to outlive Abraham. Shem finally dies uh, sometime uh, in the life of Isaac after, uh, after Abraham's gone. Anyway, both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. Are the consolations of God too small for you, even the word spoken gently with you? Meaning you ignored what I had to say in chapter 4. <laughs> okay, I'm giving you another shot here. Eliphaz is so nice. Uh, why does your heart carry you away? Why do your eyes flash that you should turn your spirit against God and allow such words to go out of your mouth? 
So he's accusing Job of a temper tantrum, that he's angry, he's a quick-tempered man. And we'll get to that in Proverbs 14, 17, the quick-tempered man. Um, so, uh, that you should turn against the spirit, your spirit against God, and allow such words to go out of your mouth. What is man that he should be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? And it's curious to me, he has now completely digested everything that demon was telling him back in chapter 4. Completely digested it all. Now he's cycling it. Now he's communicating it. Now he's expressing it as if it's coming from his own source. What is man that he should be pure? You know, we're fallen creatures. Who, who do we think we are? Or he who was born of a woman. Was your mom a woman? Okay. Here we are. We're humans. And it's curious to me. He denies any human purity, even though the promise is that the seed of the woman is going to provide redemption for the, for the human race. He who is born of a woman, that he should be righteous. Behold, he puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks iniquity like water. And so here's, uh, here's Eliphaz completely digesting everything that demon had told him back in chapter 4, spewing it forth from his own uh, ministry, his own concept. He's got a doctrine here of the total depravity of man that does not have any kind of grace, any kind of redemption, any kind of forgiveness, any kind of purity. You and I can answer these questions right here. What is man that he should be pure? A believer saved by grace. How about that? Born of a woman, yes, but born again from above. Thank you very much. Okay, so in my first birth, yes, I'm a sinner in Adam by that first uh, birth. But I'm a saint in Jesus Christ. I'm a holy one in Jesus Christ by my new birth. Born from above. Anyway. Eliphaz goes on. The, the argument here is, is curious and, and what he thinks he solved with his theology but we'll let that go for now. Uh, no, let's get down to verse 31. Um, so, there's a context for verse 31. Uh, and, and it's talking about someone that's uh, stretched out his hand against God in verse 25. So this is what a wicked person needs to do. Repent, get right with God. Okay, And so, um, the wicked man's got, got these things. Basically, Job, I'm talking to you because you're a wicked man. And, and so the destroyer is coming upon you and you've got to turn. You've got to, you've got to return from darkness. And um, so let's see, verse 25, because he has stretched out his hand against God and conducts himself arrogantly against the Almighty, he rushes headlong at him with his massive shield for he has covered his face with his fat and has made his thighs heavy with flesh. That's kind of fun. Um, he has lived in desolate cities and houses no one would inhabit, which are destined to become ruins. He's telling Job, look, if you continue this rebellion, you're headed for some ugly things. He will not become rich, nor will his wealth endure. His grain will not bend down to the ground. He will not escape from darkness. The flame will wither his shoot, and by the breath of the mouth of his mouth, he will go away. So you can't attack God. Stop it now. Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his reward. Now, of everything Eliphaz has said in all these chapters, 
That makes a lot of sense. I kind of like it. <laughs> you know, it's like accidental preaching when in the midst of your rant, you actually communicate a truth. And it's true not because Eliphaz said it, but because we can correlate it with other passages of Scripture. And who wants to trust in emptiness? Right? Do you want to trust in emptiness? No. And that's just self-deception. Emptiness will be his reward. All right, coming from a, a terrible source, but I agree with what he has to say there. Um, and I think Jesus validates that too as well. When you're boasting before men, you have your reward. When you're uh, tithing before men and all the things you're doing, you have your reward. Emptiness will be his reward. Over to chapter 39 and verse 12. You want to put your faith in the wrong object? Don't put your faith in the wrong object. Why are you going to put your faith in the wrong object? All right, so in chapter 39, God is talking. And God is rebuking Job. Um, starting in chapter 38 and 39, so he's rebuking Job. He is pretty insulting. He says, gird up your loins like a man. Okay? And uh, he says, all right, Job. And then all these things, do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know this? You think you're a know-it-all, but let me give you a long list of things and you don't know. You weren't there. You didn't create this place. And, uh, and so it, it's really it's a long diatribe, sanctified, because it's all coming from God. And it continues on from chapter 38 into chapter 39. Um, it says, do you know the time the mountain goat gives birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you count the months they fulfill? Do you know the time they give birth? And all these things, God's got a handle on all of it. And if Job's going to put himself in God's place, then Job's got a lot of work to do keeping track of all this stuff. Uh, who sent out the wild donkey free? Who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey in verse 5? Um, there's uh, the ox in verse 10. Uh, or even in verse 9, will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Are you able to tame that thing and, and domesticate it? Can you bind the wild ox in a furrow with ropes? Or, or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you trust him because his strength is great and leave your labor to him? And the whole question about this is, again, is this an appropriate, is this an appropriate object for your faith? You know, you've got domesticated animals, you've got wild animals. Who are you going to trust to plow your, your field next, next, uh, next year? Anyway, it's just another illustration that if you place your trust in, uh, in the wrong object, and for the wrong reason, do you trust him because his strength is great? Oh, you know, how many people are trusting because, well, it seems like this can take care of my problem. It seems like this, uh, he has enough money to pay for this, or he has enough strength to finish this, or he has the ability to get this done. And so a pragmatic uh, consideration then uh, motivates a person to trust in them, to believe, to accept them. Okay, well, I can't do it, but he can do it. He can bail me out of this trouble. I'm going to trust in him. So strength alone, I mean, goodness, strength? You're trusting because of strength? That doesn't make any sense. Anyway, 
Will you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it from your threshing floor? It's not like we're talking about a domesticated ox that you can put in a tandem and, and uh, you know, this is a wild ox. Seriously? You're going to put your faith in that? Anyway, what kind of a moron would do that? Uh, Psalm 146 in verse 3. This one will be easier. I realize maybe some of these are somewhat obscure, but I wanted to show you as many as I could and also to show you the wide spectrum. There's not a single instance in which God portrays faith in the wrong object on on a positive basis. Whether you're talking agriculturally or or angelically or spiritually or humanly or what politically or anything, where what is the context in which faith in a wrong object is is praiseworthy? Never. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not try, which is longer than while I live, by the way. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. How many people go into the ballot box trusting in man? They think that the next election, just, just the next election, the next election. And yeah, you said that the last five elections. Why, why do you think this next election is going to be different? Why are you trusting a politician? Why are you looking to a president or a governor or a mayor or whatever? Why are you trusting in man? Where is your faith? Do not trust in princes mortal man in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs, he returns to the earth. In that very day his thoughts perish. You know, when your faith is granted in a person, what do you do after they die? You know? How many people are still listening to the theme tapes? He's been in heaven how many years? Okay? I mean, don't get me wrong, there's good information there, but really? Where's your faith? Is it the man or the message? He told you it's not the man, it's the message. And I'm curious as to some folks. And Anyway, that is something else. Do not trust in princes. Jeremiah 12, 6. Verse 5 says, If you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, how can you compete with horses? <laughs> And you fall down in a land of peace. How will you do in the thicket of Jordan? That makes sense. You know, if you can't win a race against human beings, what are you going to do racing against horses? Verse 6, For even your brothers and the household of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. You think, well, if I can trust anybody in this world, I can trust family at least. Family won't betray me. Seriously? <laughs> What family are you in? Okay, All the human families on this planet are sinners same as you. Sinners same as me. Sadly, even your believing family can betray you because they can go carnal. They have dealt treacherously with you. Even they have cried aloud after you. Do not believe them, although they may say nice things to you. (laughs) Well, they're so nice. Yeah, of course they're nice. There's a reason why they're so nice. They want something. What's the real motivation? That's why they're nice. Don't confuse nice with uh, anything. So do not believe them. All right. 
Then uh, still in Jeremiah, it was 12, 6, how about 17, 5? Not only does this say don't do it, it says you're cursed if you do. You know, we've had all these other verses saying don't do it, don't do it, but now if you do, there's a curse that goes with that. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. All right, so stay tuned for that because that's the Hebrews 3 warning right there. See to it, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes his flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert. He will not see when prosperity comes. will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. So give up on the faith rest life. You, he sworn as wrath, you shall not enter his rest. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. Two statements there and both are true. You trust in the Lord, that's the verb, and your trust, that's the noun, is the Lord. So you trust in Him and He is your trust. Blessed is the man, for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream. This is faith rest. This is entering into rest that Hebrews talks about. He will not fear when heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. All right, so there we have it in Jeremiah 17. There's right objects for our faith. There's wrong objects for our faith. Trusting in man is always, is, I mean, goodness, why would you trust in man when God's available? Trust in God. Micah 7.5. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. If you get to Habakkuk, you've gone too far. It's curious to me. um, Micah 7, and you wonder... uh, how Micah was brought forward in time to see 21st century America. <laughs> you know, it's like this is a chapter that applies today. Uh, it's a woe is me chapter. I'm like the fruit pickers. Like the grape gatherers, there's not a cluster of grapes to eat. Uh, verse 2, the godly person has perished from the land. There is no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. So everybody's out against everybody. We have a whole culture where half this nation is pitted against the other half of this nation. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. (laughs) They're ambidextrous evildoers. All right. Very practiced, very experienced. They're so good at it, they can do it with either hand. The prince asks also the judge for a bribe, and a great man speaks the desire of his soul, so they weave it together. Everybody's in cahoots, from the political leaders to the judicial leaders to the business leaders. You get this cabal. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come, then their confusion will occur. (laughs) They're like, what's wrong? 
We've been doing this for years. Yeah, you have. That's why you're getting what you're getting. And in a, in a world like that, do not trust a neighbor, do not have confidence in a friend, from her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. I find that curious. Notice, it doesn't call her his wife. They're not married. He just says, the one lying in your bosom. Okay? So do not trust a neighbor, do not have confidence in a friend, from her who lies in your bosom. All right, so marriage is completely devalued. They're not married, they're just, you know, whatever, friends with benefits. Guard your lips. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies are the men of his own household. Anyway, it's a, it's a curious uh, thing. And this gets quoted in the Gospels, by the way. This was Jesus' experience, this. And he, he spoke about this. His own brothers weren't believing in him. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. (laughs) So all those false objects for your faith, don't trust in them, don't trust in them, don't trust in them. Trust in God. That's what Micah says. As for me, I'm waiting for God. And, uh, And there it is. So faith in God is always right. Faith in the wrong object is never right. It's never praised for its own sake. Point C, the last of the subpoints here with uh, Pethi and Arum. The Bible introduces Arum negatively, Genesis 3 1, the serpent. The Bible introduces Arum negatively, but the Proverbs testimony is consistently positive. The Proverbs testimony is consistently positive. I don't see a negative use of Arum anywhere when I'm seeing it in. Proverbs, directed towards what God expects for you and I to be. And uh, here we are in chapter 14, and uh, the, you know we have it three times in this chapter, but even before chapter 14, we had it in chapter 12, we had it in chapter 13, and we've got it two more times coming up in future studies. It's a positive thing. We want to be a room We want to be shrewd. We want to be uh, men of discernment. Proverbs 12, 16. A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. It's the word translated prudent. Prudent. You know, we want wisdom to be practical. We want to not only have wisdom, we want to use wisdom. How many people have wisdom but don't use it? That's not very prudent, (laughs) okay? But the prudent person is using the wisdom that he has. And so we see it there. A fool's anger is known at once. And we have more lessons on that coming up too. Like I say, verse 17, it deals with a quick-tempered man. And everybody gets him, that's obvious. But a prudent man conceals dishonor. Uh, Verse 23 of chapter 12 uh, a prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. You want to have the, the prudence to keep your mouth shut. There's things that don't have to be spoken. So have some prudence. Chapter 13 and verse 16, every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool displays 
folly. Arum is a positive trait there we want to, we want to embrace. Chapter 14 and verse 8, the wisdom of the sensible is to understand his way, but the foolishness of fools is deceit. And we taught that when we were contrasting that, but it's the sensible, the wisdom of, of Arum is to understand his way. Do you know where you fit in the plan of God? And we taught that. It's the term Arum for the sensible. Of course, verse 15 we're looking at this morning comes back to verse 18. The naive inherits foolishness, but the sensible are crowned with knowledge. So there's a room in a positive way. Chapter 22 and verse 3. Proverbs 22, 3. Oh, and 27, 12. We've already seen those. 22, 3 and 27, 12. Notice that? Because, you probably spotted this half an hour ago, 22.3 and 27.12 are up here, 22.3 and 27.12. So again, it's the contrast between Pethi and Arum. The prudent sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. That's Arum versus Pethi again. And 27.12... The prudent man sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive proceed and pay the penalty. All right, so the Proverbs testimony for prudent, sensible, is always positive. And this, I didn't put it on the slide again, we've taught it before, but Jesus said, Matthew 5, be shrewd as serpents, yet be harmless as doves. That's our mandate, and so we want to we wanna do that. All right, next week we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the quick-tempered man the quick-tempered man. And um, that's bad. We don't want to be quick-tempered. If we're quick-tempered, then we're not like God. God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. We want to be long-nosed, not short-nosed. Okay? And some of the Hebrew idioms make no sense to us in, in, uh, in that. But in the Hebrew mind, if you have a very long nose, then uh, that's, that's a patience virtue. If you have a very short nose, then uh, that's, uh, that's impatient, okay? And that's how they express it. Because uh, nostrils were associated with snorting. And when you were snorting mad, when, you were, uh, when your nostrils are, uh, you know, snorting mad, that's an idiom for a temper, okay? And God has a temper. But thankfully, God has a long temper, and he is slow to anger. And so by the time he does finally start snorting, there's been so much grace and so much mercy and so much opportunity to repent. All right? And that's what we'll deal with because many, many times it's, we have that description of God. Slow to anger but abounding in loving kindness. And that's, uh, that's the God we serve. So when you and I do just the opposite, when we have that hair trigger and we're ready to just to fly off the handle... Um, that's not a good thing, all right? And, uh, and some of us, uh, I'll be preaching to myself, some of us are, are German in heritage and sinners, and even worse, we're German sinners. And, and we've got the sins of the Father, uh, which include even more of that. And so, so this, is what we, this is what we grow through, and this is what we learn from, and this is what someday we want a level of maturity to, to, uh, to remedy. And yet, is it a level of maturity that remedies this, or is it a transformation to a Christ-like mode of thinking that remedies this? And even then, 
uh, how much grace is there that makes that happen. So we'll talk about that. And, and before you go, though, let me just highlight one other thing here. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly. That's in the first half of the verse. And so this is the guy that just reacts. He doesn't think. There's no thought involved. It's just a, a reaction, temper tantrum, fly off the handle, show everybody how stupid you are, and, and get it done. The second half of the verse is worse. Because this is a man of evil devices. This is somebody who's just as angry. But he's got a control on it whereby he plots, he schemes, he, it, that anger boils and festers. And he's, over a long term, that man's going to apply some wrath in a very devious way down the road. Okay? This is somebody that in a whole lot of, um, a whole lot of vicious revenge is uh, is going to dish it up. And so in some respects, the quick temper is better than the slow, smoldering plotting of evil revenge. So we'll deal with that. Okay. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Open our eyes to these things. Show us, Father, how you are always the object of our faith. And to highlight for us the, the wrong objects that may show up in, in people, in politics, in business, in agriculture, in, in any field. Uh, Father, when we're trusting ourselves, most of all, what is that? Uh, we want to have faith in you at all times and, uh, and never depart from it. So teach us how to do these things so that there not be in any one of us an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Father, we want to be the tree firmly planted. We want to be well watered. We want to be at rest as uh, the author of Hebrews admonishes us. We want to enter into that rest and stay in that rest day by day. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.